Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, May the 9th, and you're very welcome to the weekly politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With just over two weeks to go to the referendum on the Eighth Amendment, Facebook has announced that it is going to block all foreign campaign ads for its service for the remainder of the campaign. Political editor Pat Leahy and I were joined by transparency campaigner Gavin Sheridan to discuss this. But first, I asked Pat about a column, very interesting one, which he wrote about the political backdrop to the current cervical screening controversy. Pat, there's been a lot of rhetoric expended in the wake of the cervical screening scandal over the last week or so and in the political sphere. But you had a very good piece at the weekend looking at how some of the elements here are rooted in the political system and were not addressed over and over and over again uh, by the Oireachtas when dealing with legislation. Yeah, I think one of the things, Hugh, that everybody was saying last week when the scandal uh, broke was that, the, you know, one of the great failures of the HSE was, and politicians were saying this, activists were saying this, women affected were saying that, one of the great failures of the HSE was uh, uh, was not to inform the women concerned of the false negatives in their, uh, in their smear tests. And uh, there was promises by the government to legislate for what's called mandatory disclosure. So that's where, uh, you know, a hospital or a doctor or some stage in a a person's healthcare mistake is made and uh, what the mandatory disclosure would do is force the uh, hospital or the healthcare provider, the doctor, by law to disclose that to to the patient. Because in many cases, such as in this case, uh, patients are simply not told of the mistakes that have been made in their uh, in their care, and this idea of uh, this open disclosure has been around for some time. It's a law in uh, in certain countries. Um, it has been a HSE policy since two thousand and twelve, but appears to have been honoured more in the breach than in the observance. It certainly didn't apply in the case of the women. Uh, concerned with the uh, the smear test failures, and so I look back at uh, with with the um, uh, with considerable assistance from a woman called Nuala Carney, who studied this for her uh, her masters in law, and kindly provided me with uh, her thesis, which was uh, completed last year, and which studied the introduction of a voluntary disclosure regime uh, in Ireland, which was brought in in uh, an act which was passed by the Oireachtas last year. Now, the principal, it was a Civil Liability Amendment Act, the principal part, the principal intention of the act was to provide for staged payments in cases of big court awards for medical negligence. So if something happens to you, instead of getting 10 million uh, euros as as a settlement, which you might, Run out of at some stage uh, over the course of your uh, over the course of your care. It allows for staged payments on a monthly or yearly basis and so forth. But um, this 
uh, open disclosure amendment was tacked on to that. And it was part of a lengthy process, which has been going on since 2015, when the Oireachtas Health Committee looked at this and recommended the introduction of a mandatory system of open disclosure. So the distinction, important distinction, is between a mandatory system of open disclosure and a voluntary system of open disclosure, which is what we have now. Sure. And the Oireachtas Committee did recommend this back in 2015, is that correct? In 2015, the Oireachtas Committee uh, conducted a number of hearings on it, drew up a report and recommended uh, mandatory disclosure. Um, When this bill was presented, the Oireachtas Committee did its pre-legislative scrutiny phase on this legislation uh, and it was the view in the course of that um, uh, of those committee hearings. It was the view of the medics. It was the view of the Department of Health. It was the view of the state claims agency, which manages uh, claims, legal claims against the state, that a system of voluntary disclosure was preferable. Other stakeholders disagreed, and uh, and many of the TDs that spoke at those committee meetings agreed with the stakeholders who favoured patients groups and so forth, who favoured a mandatory disclosure, a duty under law that there would be no, uh, uh, you know, that there's no opt-out sure, or no, no sure. get-out for the medics and for the, um, uh, uh, and for the healthcare providers. But you quote Nula Carney's investigation of this and the, the, the report um, which was issued as a result, as, as was the case with a debate of this sort at the Oireachtas Committee, she says, and I quote, that it was an inaccurate reflection of the debate, which I take to mean that the, the majority view of the, of the TDs and senators on that committee was that mandatory disclosure should be proceeded with, but that that was not reflected in the Yeah, that final was Neil Carney's view expressed in her thesis, and having read back many of the committee debates, um, uh, there, there seems to be significant justification for that view. Anyway, the legislation, when it was drawn up and presented to the Shannon first last year as a bill that was launched in the Shannon, uh, the section dealing with the open disclosure provided for voluntary disclosure. That was passed through the Shannon. Uh, when it came to when it came to the Dáil, it passed through its early stages in the Dáil as uh, uh, as a bill providing for voluntary disclosure. When it got to the committee stage in the Dáil, Claire Daly and Mick Wallace, who uh, are two of the most thorough legislators in the Dáil, uh, basically ambushed the government. They got the support of Fianna Fáil and of Sinn Féin and they changed the bill via amendment at committee stage uh, in the Dáil to provide for mandatory disclosure, a duty under law to disclose any medical mistakes. When the bill came back for its final stages, uh, report and final stages in the Dáil, the government put down its own amendment to reverse again mandatory disclosure and change it to voluntary disclosure. And crucially, at that stage, they had squared off Fianna Fáil. So Fianna Fáil abstained on that amendment. The government voted for the amendment. The amendment was passed and the final version of the bill provided for voluntary and not mandatory So disclosure. what we know is that on a number of occasions the government and I suppose what you might call the state and medical establishment felt that this was not desirable at this time and pushed back against uh, on a number of occasions both at committee stage attempts by legislators to bring this in and that ultimately it was not brought in because of an agreement between the two largest parties Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. It was an agreement between the two largest parties 
prompted by the concerns of the civil service, the medical establishment, the state claims agencies, and the sort of permanent actors in our system of public administration and government that often, in my observation of the political system, wield enormous power uh, but are sel- but seldom see that power scrutinized. Why I wrote about this and why I think it is interesting because it showed uh, is because the episode in its various legislative stages shows how that power is ultimately wielded. So all the the bloviating, to coin a term, that was done in the Dáil last week about the need for mandatory disclosure, we would already have mandatory in- including disclosure. Including by members of the two parties. Including who, who, by members and the commitment given by, uh, by, by government. That would already be on the statute books if these, you know, be, I, I hesitate to use the phrase deep state, but these you know, state Mm. establishment actors had not leaned so heavily on the legislative process. So implicit in your column is that we could do with fewer of these bloviating rhetoricians who were uh, getting red in the face about the HSE in various Oireachtas committees last week and more legislators who are doing the sort of work which Claire Daly and Mick Wallace were doing in this I think you can't read the legislative account of this particular bill without coming to the conclusion that very few TDs were paying close attention to what uh, to what they were doing and what they were voting on. And uh, it, it seems to me that, and the point I was making in the column, uh, is that TDs are good at uh, going red in the face when there's a scandal and demanding that this be done or that be done and the government will then promise to do all sorts of legislation. What they are not so good at is the hard and detailed and involved and tedious and often ignored business of legislating, the sausage making uh, of making laws, uh, you know, that nobody wants to see. Bismarck, uh, Bismarck said that nobody should see sausages made and nobody should see how laws are made either. But that sort of stuff, and we are to bear a degree of culpability in, uh, in the media uh, uh, on on this kind because we tend, because we show focus on the the showboating and we go all out when uh, this sort of scandal breaks but we don't pay enough attention uh, to the business of legislating that is it's not the only job TDs have of course they must represent their constituents and they must hold the government to account but the business of legislating is probably their most important one and not enough of them pay enough time and care when they're doing it that's a point worth making and thanks for that Pat. Coming up, we'll be talking to Gavin Sheridan about the current controversy over dark ads, Facebook, Google and what's happening under the digital hood of the referendum campaign. Gavin, Facebook out of the blue made this announcement yesterday about um, taking ads for the uh, Eighth Amendment campaign. Um, Why did they do it now, do you think? Uh I'm not sure why they picked now, but I thought that their statement was interesting where they said uh, it's an issue that they've been thinking about for some time, which is interesting if they've been thinking about it for some time. And they originally announced election integrity stuff in the US in the end of March. Yeah, they made a big announcement about a month, a little bit over a month ago yeah. about this um, in, in the and, and I'm kind of wondering, like, if they've been thinking about this for some time, why, why now? Should this not have been something that had been done weeks ago? Um I mean, you've just to say. I mean, you've been following this 
in great detail for 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 the for the last few weeks, and you're also well acquainted with this world. And isn't the reality is that Facebook is this enormous global corporation which has gigantic power, but is actually still, in terms of personnel and the way it addresses issues around the world, whether it be ethnic cleansing in Myanmar or whether it be what's happening in a in a small European country of which they don't know very much, even though their NBA uh, headquarters may be here, mm. that they're really. They're not on it, you know. They don't, you know, they don't have the resources apart from anything else, you know. So they're probably just reacting to media coverage that's that's popping up in their. Well, I think that's a good word. I think that's a good word. I think reactive is probably how you define Facebook's entire last two years. Um, ever since uh, Zuckerberg gave that talk at the end of 2016, where he kind of laughed off the idea that fake news had had an effect on the U.S. election campaign, um, I, I think Facebook have been in constant react mode for for two, for, ne- for a year and a half, two years now. Um, and certainly throughout last year, Facebook were in, dragged, uh, kicking and screaming to admissions around Russian interference in, in the U.S. election campaign. The Russian, the, the Facebook pages that were being run by, by the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg. Um, and eventually, you know, they went from saying, you know, maybe, maybe a few people were affected by the Russian ads, maybe a few people had seen them, to saying half of all U.S. voters had seen them over the space of about nine months. So it went from maybe 50,000 or 100,000 to 125 million in the space of between January and September of 2017, they eventually admitted this. So I think Facebook is defined by being reactive in this. And I, I think they've been quite poor in the last 18 months on the PR comms side because they seem to keep repeating the same mistakes over and over again. And um, I thought their statement yesterday was particularly interesting because in one particular line they say, this change will apply to ads we determine to be coming from foreign entities which are attempting to influence the, the outcome of the vote. Is that is that up to is that up to Facebook to say we will determine? Uh, and first of all, there's a few things going on there. There's as that we determine that we think are coming from foreign entities. How are how is Facebook defining foreign entities? How is how is Facebook defining attempting to influence? How is Facebook de- de- determining what counts in this? Is that their job? Um, I think this is the key point. It's not necessarily just about this referendum. It's not just about uh, you know this particular instance. It's across the board. From now until you know the end of time, we're going to be having elections and referenda. And the broader issue here is: is this up to Facebook, or is it up to uh, uh, to do this voluntarily, which is essentially what they're saying here, or is it up to us to create laws around this stuff um, that mandate companies like like Facebook have to do this? And I thought Google's announcement yesterday, uh, or the, in the Times Ireland today, they, they had a front page story saying that. Um, Google had said, no, we're actually not going to follow Facebook into this. Well, in one way, you could say, who are Google to, say, to tell us that? Um, you know, it, this is not really up to them. To be fair, which opinion. I'm not always to these, uh, to these companies, they're not breaking any law. They're operating as commercial entities in this marketplace as in every other one they do, Pat. And well, if, if, if when we're assigning fault here... Surely the major fault um, lies with the organs of the state, yes, which precisely. have had all these rules in place for years about broadcasting regulations and at least, you know, some transparency on funding within the in the country and, and all that kind of stuff. And there isn't a piece of legislation to do with this. Yes, precisely. The great failure is of the legislature led by the government to le- to, to put laws in place which govern this aspect of electioneering. We have laws in place about the posters that go up, about the literature that is published, about mail shots that are sent to voters and and all that sort of thing. The conduct of our elections and our referendums are 
governed by a set of laws that we have enacted, that the Parliament has enacted, because we understand that the public space, and particularly when it comes to the democratic process, has to be regulated. And at the heart of how that regulation works are two fundamental pillars. One is that uh, people have to account for what money they spend in the course of an election or referendum. They have to declare that. And the second is any participants in that public debate, the election or referendum, are accountable for what they publish. So it must be traceable to them. So every leaflet, every poster must show who it is. uh, And none of this applies. None of this applies online, not because we have decided, we in the broadest sense, but specifically the legislature or the government, not because uh, we have decided that it doesn't matter that the online space is now an election forum and we're happy to let to let it be uh, free for all, but simply because politicians haven't got around to legislating. Now, That's why we're in the now we like In the absence of that, then it's we, we sure. transfer that yeah, power we're reliant on faith, which is just uh, yeah, as, as Gavin says, it's That's just absolutely absurd that a that a, a a company is arrogating to itself a decision about what's appropriate, either in terms of the content or or who provides the content. But I mean, we like we like nothing more than hand wringing over the dysfunctional nature of our political process around these parts. But is this not a problem which is not just restricted to Ireland? That most democracies have been slow in terms of coming to terms with this transformation in the way the communications technology works. Absolutely the case, but it's a problem for Ireland now and it was a foreseeable problem for for Ireland with a referendum in which there was going to be significant international interest and the potential for international interference in. That has all been visible from a long way out. Gavin wrote a piece in our paper, I think a year ago, uh, pointing, pointing this out. But so did I, actually. But anyway, well, all, all the greats have been in on it. Uh, <laughs> it, it seems I came much later to the party myself, perhaps predictably. But um, uh, but you know, this is not something that we should be surprised about. Now it's too late to do it. Now you're in the middle of a campaign. We're two weeks, uh, two weeks and a bit from polling day, uh, and that's why we find ourselves in a position. Why Facebook? I think, and you know, we could. Facebook won't tell us why they made uh, this decision or won't spell out why they made the decision in the absence of a satisfactory explanation from them. I suspect that they feared the referendum was going to be defeated and Facebook's part in that campaign would come under intense scrutiny. As has happened in other electoral contests over the last over the last couple of years, as, as Gavin said. There's a number of things I I wonder about this. One is you pointed out to the the Facebook statement there. They they won't define publicly what they mean by foreign ads or foreign bought ads. And the way in which these marketplaces work, uh, obviously one of the great powers of these companies is that these global corporations with transactions happening across traditional national national borders and, you know, programmatic advertising, it's always a mystery as to who the hell bought it in the first place and where it ends up. So... What faith can we have that these things are going to stop? And also, how do we how do we um, keep an eye on this over the next well, couple of weeks? Uh, well, well, there's, there's, I think to the first question, I'd say what's required is, you know, I, you could argue in favour of emergency legislation right now to say that you know certain certain things that are happening within the digital sphere should be uh, mandated, something that should be happening by law that would disallow or would uh, create greater uh, onuses on people around digital ad spend or transparency around digital ad spend or 
uh, disclosure obligations around where the money came from, that kind of thing. But I, in, in the longer term, you need, in my view, everything that we have in terms of our structures when it comes to elections and referenda is out of date. And that will require, in my view, root and branch reform of the entire thing and building best-in-class model legislation for how any country start. We could start with Ireland, and if other countries want to copy and take Ireland's lead on this, Ireland could lead in terms of how we build modern electoral legislation for the digital era. And we're a small country, we're an open country, we do have lots of digital companies here as well. I think if we were to sit down and go, okay, we'll repeal the Electoral Acts, we'll, we'll get rid of SIPO, and we'll start again with a brand new set of systems, slightly perhaps modelled on the lessons that have been learned from the Electoral Commission in the UK. We've been threatening to set up an Electoral Commission pad, I think, for I don't, know how, I don't know how long at this stage. But the Electoral Commission, the lessons that have been learned from the Electoral Commission in the UK, what you saw uh, with the Brexit referendum was, you know, you had, I think, spending limits of, I think, £7 million for each side of the referendum. You had efforts, allegedly, by one side, the, the Leave side, to kind of get around those, those uh, spending limits by funneling uh, money to, uh, to a third party that the Electoral Commission are currently investigating. And also by alleged sort of co- cooperation between these groups and yeah, coordination standalone groups, groups in, which, order, you know, but, in but, order to meet the But it's worth bearing in mind, why do, we, why do we know that that's a potential allegation? Number one, because the UK has an Electoral Commission. Number two, because on the Electoral Commission's website, you have to publish where you spent the money because you have a spending limit and you have to prove it, right? We could very easily uh, say to the, to the UK Electoral Commission, hey, what have you learned since the, since the Brexit referendum? What worked and what didn't? And then we could start from there and say to our, our, own, our own legislature, we can build a brand new set of laws that work within in the, in how campaigns are run in 2018, as opposed to the current situation, which I think is more akin to how they worked in 1997 when the, electorates were, were, the current electorates were brought in. So I think there's an, opportun- there's an opportunity here and there's a, there's a, there's a broader issue around um, how, how will digital campaigns work next year? How will they work in five years' time? And, you know, the core of all this is usually down to the same basic principles. Equality of arms. So, you know, do both sides have, have the same? And this is what the, the, the UK has done, where it's like you, have, you can only spend this amount and that's it. Uh, transparency obligations, disclosure obligations. Um, these things can work in the context of uh, social media platforms. Because social media platforms... Is, it, is anybody making as, them work right now? Uh, like, no. And this is no why I'd say we could be early into this trend about how you do this. I mean, uh, I was talking to a friend about this uh, yesterday. Ireland was quite early on the FOI, a subject close to my heart. Ireland was quite early on the FOI trend, you know. When we passed our FOI legislation in 1997, we were in like the first 18 to 20 countries, I think. And we copied our legislation largely from New Zealand and Australia. We were in the first 20 countries in the world. There's now 120 countries in the world that have FOI legislation. And that's just since in the last 20 years. So an extra 100 countries, more or less, have, have joined the FOI fraternity. There's no reason why we can't sit down and go, okay, in the modern era... How will we run uh, and, and regulate uh, an election campaign or a referendum campaign? Because we, we've identified a lot of the problems and we also have a fairly good idea what the solutions look like um, because we've seen what's happened in, in the UK. And, and I'd say the UK would probably say as well, if you, if you asked their electoral commission, where did things go wrong? What, what, do, you, what do you think are the missing pieces giving, given the, 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 uh, the, the general election earlier this year and the, um, or uh, last year? And given the, the, the Brexit referendum, there's probably in that somewhere a formula that, that our parliament can create a really good law. I, I just wonder, Pat, Gavin says... And no I, should say, I should say as well, last I checked, social platforms in any given country exist under the rule of law. 
Well, well, indeed. And in fact, this is, this is my, my, my point. I mean, Gavin says there's no good reason why we can't do this. If I were to be cynical, I would say, well, perhaps one of the reasons why we might end up not doing this is because uh, this state has a huge vested interest in the presence of a lot of these companies with their, with their European headquarters here in Dublin. And we're going to be talking a little bit later in this podcast about the way in which vested interests affect things like the, the current uh, cervical testing um, scandal. There is a huge vested interest on the part of the state and its relationship with Facebook and Google and the rest of them, not to perhaps get out ahead of the pack in terms of having stringent legislation governing what they can or can't do in this country. And by extension, perhaps across other countries. Sure. And, and, you know, we were asking Google questions yesterday while two ministers were opening an extension to a data centre for uh, for Google. And there is, of course, a... You know, there is a a significant extent to which government, any Irish government, not just this one, does not want to uh, antagonise or annoy or offend uh, the companies that have not just who, uh, who employ an awful lot of people here, but who, because of their tax structures, pay hundreds of millions of euros in uh, in tax here. But they're not paying that tax here, or they're not here because they like us or because of our lax electoral laws. They're here out of self-interest. And I think the state and the political system has to uh, ask itself whether, you know, the whether they're in situ to... Uh, uh, to keep Google happy or whether Google and Facebook and the rest of them are in Ireland for the benefit of the Irish people. No, and but state regulators across Europe in particular, but probably elsewhere too, are coming for some of these companies because they are in many ways entirely unregulated. So, for example, some of the stuff that we see happening right now around data privacy and, and issues like that, there's going to be increased legislation in that area. There's good, There's undoubtedly going to be increased legislation in relation to the subject we're talking about here, about uh, about political advertising. And ultimately, there may be issues about, you know, monopolies and, uh, you know, lack of comp- competitive practices. All that stuff is coming for these companies, isn't it? And one of the things, it seems to me, they like about Ireland is the traditional light-touch regulation. I'm sure, uh, I'm sure they do, but there's a difference, I think, between the, those commercial concerns, real and all as they may be, and the difficulties that the that the activities that these country these companies facilitate pose for the democratic process and for how we govern ourselves. That, to me, is of a different order than the commercial uh, the, the commercial concerns, real as they are, and and therefore should be accorded a higher. Priority. I mean, I think in two decades, three decades time, these companies will be and, and the activities that they facilitate will be regulated. Otherwise, our democratic process will be hollowed out. And, you know, we have seen in recent weeks how uh, we, we've seen a glimpse I think, of how that can happen in Ireland. We've seen it uh, in the United States as well. It's something that presents a real and present danger to the integrity of referendums and elections, no matter what side you're on. And, you know, while a lot of the complaints of this have come from uh, uh, from people on the repeal side who felt that they were being, uh, who felt that they were being outspent by dark money from the United States, and that uh, may well be true, uh, to an extent. It's not just about this referendum, it's about all referendums and it's about all elections here and that's too important uh, to pass by. Do you think though Gavin that it's particularly applicable or at least these tools are particularly powerful 
it seems to me, when you're faced with a binary choice, whether it be in a referendum or indeed in a very two-party-based system uh, like I, you have in the United States. I think States. they are, and they were certainly powerful, I think, in the Brexit referendum. I they, mean, they were, seem to be less effective in attempts to interfere, for example, in the German and French elections. Yeah, and, and I think that's fair. I think, I think what you could say as well is that um, when you're looking at digital campaigns, and, and look, there's a reason Facebook and Google combined are worth over a trillion dollars, I think, at this stage. It's because it has work. Right? They're both ad companies. Um, Facebook mines social graphs and social media in order to understand its audience so that it can sell that. They don't, they'll say they don't sell that data to, to people, but they, they sell the intelligence around its audience to advertisers in order to target you. Google makes a lot of its money as well from ads. Um, if, you look at, if you look at the ability for me sitting in, in my living room to take out an ad uh, related to, say, the referendum, um, and I have money to spend... I can knock on people's doors, but just virtually. So I, I can get into someone's phone when they're looking at their Facebook account or their Instagram account and say, hey, here's an ad that I think presents an accurate view of why I think you should vote yes or no, whatever the, the case may be. Um, should I have the right to do that in an, un, an entirely unregulated, untrammeled way? I think we even haven't had that debate yet properly as a society, right? But I think, is it effective? I think it is. I think otherwise, why would these companies be worth so much that if I, you know, if you imagine the situations where uh, traditional campaigning would be, you know, the, the ground game, as they say in the US, where you're going knocking on lots of people's doors and you're saying, I think you should vote yes or no, depending which side you're on, and saying, here's why, and you have, might have a debate at the doorstep. That's a very time-consuming and laborious process. Um, I think the yes side seems to be able to view that this is a more important part of the campaign um, than, than, say, on the digital side. Maybe it is and maybe it isn't. But my view would be, um, it is in a way a lot less laborious and in some ways more inexpensive in some ways when it comes down to time to say, okay, we're going to knock on the digital doors, as, I, as you might say, of people who are, are on YouTube watching the latest clips. And I want to get a pre-roll ad in front of them to say, I think you should vote yes or no. I mean, no. I think that's a, that, that, that's a perfectly tenable theory and I probably might tend to, to agree with it. But on the other hand, it's not proven. And I mean, you've been critical in the last few days of of the yes campaign for essentially not matching up to, well, to what I, we're seeing well i think my on the digital ground well, from I, the no campaign well yes but like i mean i i'll sit down and i'll just look at how many interactions and how many views and what's going on on the digital side because they, there is a trail left when you're looking at how ads work online right to some extent not across across the board i don't know how many click throughs Google ad, display ads are getting for the no side because they seem to be saturating the market with, with no ads across Google display um, on search results or within websites. Um, but I can see view counts on YouTube videos. I can see view counts on, on Facebook videos. I can, to some extent, using the, the tool that, that, that Liz Carlin and, uh, and Craig have built with the transparency revenue, I can get some data about what ads are currently running through the the, the, the ecosystem of the Irish social media sphere. And what, is, what's, what does that tell you? Um, when I look at the data, I'm just going, okay, comment counts, like counts, share counts from one side, and then when you look at view counts of the videos that are being, that are being shared, are an order of magnitude bigger, in my view, from what I've seen. And again, this is anecdotal. I ha- the pro- part of the problem... It's necessarily but, anecdotal. But, but, but part, that's, this is part of the problem. Sure, it's necessarily anecdotal mm-hmm. because I don't have the data in its completeness because Facebook has it or Google has it or YouTube has it. Yeah, but, and I total, but you've, it. Said, you've said you think the referendum is going to fail. I, I, think, I think if I, was, uh, if I was to make an assessment now, I'd say that it's going to be extremely close and I think at the moment from what I'm seeing, uh, the no would edge it. And I could be wrong. I could be right. 
but is, I'm, express, I'm expressing an opinion at the moment based on what I'm seeing. Pat, you have a piece in, in, in today's Irish Times about, and it touches on, on this very subject, and it strikes me that you know the, the two big examples of where we've seen this, and there's been debate in the wake of them, were the Brexit vote and the election of Donald Trump. Uh, and that in both cases, we knew from polls in advance of them that those contests were quite tight. You know, there was less than 5% uh, between either side in each of those contests. Polls that we have at the moment in relation to the referendum show a considerably higher margin between yes and no. Isn't that true? Yeah, what we see in all the published polls since the start of the referendum and and before the referendum and borne out, uh, I'm told, by, uh, by some private uh, research is that the yes side has a reasonably substantial lead. That lead has been falling. It was 6337, uh, I think, excluding don't knows uh, in, our, uh, in our last poll. It is tightening. So there's a poll in the Sunday in, uh, Independent at the weekend which showed a further tightening. There is still a substantial amount of don't knows and don't knows tend to swing towards the conservative status quo position in uh, a referendum. So there is no doubt that this race is tightening. That's what we would have uh, we would have expected. But you don't see the sort of knife edge. Um, finely balanced contest that you would have seen in both the US on the presidential election and in the uh, in the UK on Brexit. That's not to say that the race cannot tighten further, that it cannot come down to uh, you know a small, relatively small number of votes at the end. What it does tell us is that we don't see a sign of that big jump in the campaign yet. Now, maybe facilitated by the sort of advertising that Gavin. He's talking about in the online space. Maybe that is to come. But you quote some no campaigners in today's piece. You essentially quote some no campaigners saying that they're not convinced perhaps about some of these advertising strategies that we're seeing online. Yeah, I think... aiding their case. Yeah, I think a lot of the, uh, at least some of the the ads that we've seen sourced from the US, and Gavin has written uh, a bit about this, seem to be from the kind of extreme Catholic fringe of the anti-abortion movement. And just like, and we've talked about this before here, just like the posters of the aborted fetuses, the people in the mainstream no campaigns believe that that does not help their cause. That is a uh, that is a strategy to get out their base, to energise their base, to get out their vote. But at this stage of the campaign, it's about the waverers in the middle and that sort of thing can turn off the waverers in the middle. It strikes me talking about this, we're all kind of talking in the dark, really, aren't we? And this is one of the things about this world that we're in now with the, with, with, with digital content, dark ads, you know, micro-targeting. And, and, and I think that this is it's a, it's an important distinction to make. It's like, you know, when there's a television ad that's broadcast or you know, by the referendum commission or, or, or there's something broadcast on radio or whatever it is, broadcast mechanism or in a print newspaper or in a leaflet, there's a visibility to it that it's, 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 it's one to many, right? But social media doesn't work that way. It's one-to-one, it's, it's targeting individuals. So it goes into my individual feed on my individual Instagram or Facebook account yes. or YouTube account. It's me that's seeing it. But nobody else necessarily sees sure. what I'm seeing in the same way. Um, and also, obviously, with all the different types of ads you can run concurrently in order to, to see which ones work best and then double down on the ones that are, that are getting the most traction in terms of interactions. That's an entirely solitary experience because when, when you're on the diet and you're, you're watching everybody on their phones you don't really know what everybody is seeing per se in terms of ads that are on their social media accounts. But when it's, when it's one to many, everybody can kind of have a group experience and say, oh, okay, this is, this is what's being put out there by either side of, of a campaign and same with posters that are up in public places. But 
inherently social media is a private experience and we have no visibility about what's what's going on as such. The only people who have access to the information are, are the social platforms. But what we haven't seen yet in Ireland is an indication that that is a power, that can be a powerful political force. We have seen it elsewhere, but we haven't seen it in Ireland yet. Now, maybe that's because we haven't had such a campaign and we're having one now. So we are, to a certain degree, in the dark. But if there is this great kind of this great late surge it hasn't manifested itself yet oh, we're only two weeks out now so we're going to know pretty soon Gavin thanks very much for coming in and that's it for this edition of Inside Politics thanks to our producer Jennifer Ryan and our engineer JJ Vernon remember that you can subscribe to us on iTunes or your preferred podcast provider you can find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts you can drop me an email at hlenhan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter but until the next time goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening <laughs>